Welcome to the Mindful News Podcast, where today we speak with Vanessa Cudderford, the founder and communications coach at Present, Perform and Persuade. And there was one particular occasion where I was interviewing a senior politician and I literally choked on air. So I just swallowed the wrong way. I'm not choked, choked. you actually choked. I actually visited. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Of course, choking can mean, um, you know, just kind yeah. of hoping, can't it? But, um, but no, I physically choked. And... It was horribly embarrassing because I couldn't speak. And my co-presenter <laughs> had to take over the interview and I was yeah. kind of you know, coughing away in the background. My thoughts then weren't about how do I do this interview well? What questions should I ask? Where's the story? It was all about me. What are people going to think of me? How am I going to cope? What if this thing happens again? And my focus went very sort of internal, which it hadn't really ever been before. I'd always been interested in finding out the story, speaking to the person. You know, when I heard the theme music of my show starting up, I would, and obviously I've got an earpiece, I'm sitting in the studio, mm. you're hearing the person in the uh, the director's chair counting down 10, 9, 8, mm. 7, and you know, oh my God, I'm going to be air, on air in, you know, five seconds time and I'm really exposed and everyone's watching me. And I'd always get a thought in that moment, I want to run away. What the hell am I doing here? I'm just, I want to get up and run away now. And when people first come to me they often think it's just a technique problem like yeah. i can't remember my script or um you know i don't have the answers to these um, questions that i'm being asked and obviously we do of course do some technique stuff but first you've got to believe and feel and know that you can do this thing yeah. mm-hmm. because if you don't feel and know and believe that then you can have all the techniques in the world but you're still not going to be able to do it a bit like me when that happened to me when i started sort of falling apart on air i was really experienced it wasn't a technique thing i've been doing it for about eight years by that point so it was all about what was going on between my ears vanessa is, is a strategic communications advisor who helps companies and individuals to lead change through persuasive communication So she brings 20 years of broadcast experience as a producer, reporter and news anchor with companies like the BBC, ITV, NBC News. And following the stresses of the job over the years and literally choking on air, this led to a sequence of events to build a successful online communications coaching company, developing a digital learning platform and courses which have helped hundreds of professionals speak confidently and persuasively. Vanessa actually helped inspire me to level up my coaching game and has helped to make great introductions for my business. And I'm super keen to have Vanessa share some of her wonderful insights on the podcast. Visit VanessaCudderford.com for more information about Vanessa and the wonderful courses that she offers. Also visit MindfulNews.uk for all our podcasts, powerful video clips and our growing library of free guided mental exercises, including this week's latest release, a five-minute meditation for when we don't have time. I'm your host, Guy on our continuing mission to help as many people as possible organically. If you enjoy the conversation and benefit from it, share it with someone and pay it forward. So thank you for for joining joining me this morning, Vanessa. And, you know, just to set a bit of context, you've actually been a massive help in helping to get my business off the ground. You know, you've been very forthcoming with your help and time and ideas, especially structure. So I'm firstly, you know, very grateful for that. But you specialized in helping people to communicate confidently and effectively. And, and just for our listeners, uh, I'd be very keen if you can help just explain a little bit about, you know, about your background. You know, you've got a vast experience in 
TV presenting, working with the BBC. And there's a lot of lessons that you've taken away from that now you, you hone in and you use to, to teach your best bits to your clients. So in order to kick things off, I just wanted to perhaps dig in, go back a little bit further. As we get into this podcast, if you could explain a bit about your childhood and your upbringing, what do you think led you to pursue a career in media and presenting and how that came about? Was it a mentor or role model? You know, so if you could introduce yourself and, and, you know, and tell us a little bit about that and we can just explore the conversation from there. Yeah, that's such an interesting question. One that I don't know I've been asking, but first of all, it's lovely to be on your podcast. Very sweet of you to say I'd helped you. If I have, then I'm delighted to hear that because I think what you're doing is so important, particularly the work that you're doing in corporations, because there's a mental health problem out there. So many people have so many stresses to do with work and what you do, helping them get that perspective um, is really, really vital. And it's something that I experienced when I was working as a news anchor, a lot of the stress, a lot of the pressure I felt was what led me to feel that I couldn't speak in public confidently. And I know we're going to be talking about that later. But to return to your question that you asked me about my childhood, why did I want to do this? Well, you know, my dad actually was a BBC sports commentator and that's my mum. He um, was an athletics commentator and he used to commentate at the Olympics. My mum's Mexican. He met her in 1968. And so really it was because of that exciting career. And it sounded so exciting to me as a child. You know, he used to travel the world, meet all these interesting people, ask questions about these interesting people. And really, it seemed to me when he would talk about those stories that he had, I suppose, a great vantage point on some really key moments in history. You know, in 1968 in Mexico in the Olympics, it was the Black Power movement. And, you know, my dad commentated on that and he saw those things firsthand. He was in Munich where there was the big, um, right. yeah, you know about that, don't you? The, yeah. um, the killing the tax, yeah. really mm-hmm. athletes yeah. and so on. So, you know, these were all kind of moments in history that he was witness to. And that just seemed really exciting to me. And so that's what what led me to that. And, you know, throughout my, I suppose, later childhood at school, I was involved in journalism. I would write for the school newspaper. Then when I was at university, I was involved in that as well. I then finished university and I went to work for a newspaper in Ghana and then went on to to do a journalism degree and, and went that way. So really, it was that kind of, I suppose, opportunity to see the world, to see events happening firsthand and meet some really fascinating people. And I think you can't not be a journalist if you're not a little bit nosy. And I'm quite nosy. Yeah. So it sounds like from your parents' side, you know, is confidence something that was kind of nurtured in you from a young age? And do you feel like you always had that? Or was that something that you had to develop? That's really interesting. I think I did feel pretty confident as a child. I was always performing. I was dancing. I liked drama. And yeah, that confidence piece was always there. And actually, it was only much later in my career when I was already quite successful. I already had my own show five nights a week with ITV that I first felt that confidence hit. And really, it was because I was putting a lot of pressure on myself to be perfect. Mm. And, you know, often when we kind of know less and we're new at something, we almost don't realize how much we don't know. And that can lead to a false sense of confidence, can't it? And I think perhaps early in my career, I did just have this kind of rock solid confidence because I didn't know what I didn't know. And then you experience and you realize that things can go wrong. I did have some experiences of things going wrong on air. Obviously, that happens. And that then started to perhaps sort of 
eat away at my confidence a little bit. My husband always jokes that you should hire a teenager while they still know everything. And, you know, that always makes me laugh because there's truth in that, isn't that? Yeah. When we're younger, we think we know it all. The world's our oyster and that's brilliant, isn't it? You've got to go out there into the world feeling that way. But then reality hits and experience mm-hmm. teach you that, yeah, you don't always have it all together. And yeah. certainly that I think is what happened to me. So what show was that on ITV? It was one of the regional news programs. So, you know, there are, I forget how many now, but eight or so regions, um, ITV regions in the UK, and they have the half hour news program off just before the, the main oh, evening. Nice. Yeah. So at that point I was doing the program for the Southwest of England. Yeah. On your website, you know, what we've spoken about before, you do, you do mention, you know, a couple of moments where in the role that you felt the pressure and kind of remind me of, um, to show if you know, Dan Harris. You know, he's a no. famous American news anchor. Uh-huh. And the reason why I know about him is because he has a podcast about mindfulness and a book that he wrote called 10% Happier. And, you know, he's very much into meditation. But at that time, cocaine and, and some of the drugs that, you know, that the anchors were doing. But he on TV, live on air, he has a nervous breakdown. Wow. I don't know if it was a panic attack or breakdown, but it's something where he just caused him to... You know, he's just sweating profusely and he's just trying to get through it. And live on air, he had to kind of navigate through dealing with this. And um, that led him on a journey to try and introspection, understand why, how to deal with that. Yeah. Was that something akin to, to what you went through? And yeah. uh, explain a little bit about what you mean by, you know, having those issues. Yeah. yeah. So I think it was something that didn't happen all in one go, like it sounds like it did perhaps for Dan Harris. But okay. The more senior I got, the more pressure I felt. So I had my own show. You know, there were viewing figures that would be presented to me every month. And we're down this month. We're up this month. And clearly you're being watched the whole time and you're being assessed the whole time. I also had some episodes of viewers getting a little bit strange and being sent strange things in the post. I wouldn't call it stalking as such. It didn't get to that level. But that, you know, was something that I didn't find easy. The attention in that way. And really, it was a kind of gradual thing where I found myself just worrying more and more about going on air every night, worrying that I wouldn't be able to cope with something that happened. And then feeding into that, some things did go wrong. And there was one particular occasion where I was interviewing a senior politician and I literally choked on air. So I just swallowed the wrong way. I'm not choked, choked. You actually choked. I actually visited. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Of course, choking can mean, um, you know, just kind of coping, can't it? But, um, but no, I physically choked, and it was horribly embarrassing because I couldn't speak, and my (laughs) co-presenter had to take over the interview, and I was kind of coughing away in the background. And afterwards, I came off air, and I just felt so embarrassed, and I thought that my news editor who was quite a tough cookie, was, um, you know, going to say, "What the hell happened there?" Actually my news editor was pretty nice about it and said, you know, these things happen and you cope with it, but it really stuck with me. And I really thought that might happen again. Mm -hmm. And so I then became quite obsessive about it really. Mm -hmm. And it got to the point where, you know, some months later I was kind of going through scripts before I went on air, trying to cut out words. So I'd have less to say Mm -hmm. because I felt if I have less to say, and then I need to swallow (laughs) there'll be more opportunities to swallow and it was just getting kind of taking up all my thoughts and becoming really obsessive and my thoughts then weren't about how do I do this interview well what questions should I ask where's the story it was all about me 
What are people going to think of me? How am I going to cope? What if this thing happens again? And my focus went very sort of internal, which it hadn't really ever been before. I'd always been interested in finding out the story, speaking to the person, but it became very much more about me. And, you know, one of the things that helped, I ended up having some cognitive behavioral therapy to just get some perspective and get out of my own head and get out of my own way and realize, actually, first of all, bad things happen in inverted commas, you know, choking is was a bad, embarrassing thing, but actually nothing really bad happened. You know, yes. you're still you're still doing the job. No one really cares. And just our perceived interpretation of that of that moment. Yeah. Just a little bit embarrassing, that's all. No one died, you know. So that was really helpful for me for for changing my my thought patterns, which I know is a lot of what mindfulness gives you. And actually the woman who I did that cognitive behavioral therapy with, she did initially recommend that I do some some mindfulness. And I know that you've had John Kabat-Zinn on your podcast and listening to his guided meditations was really helpful for me because one of the things was that I was getting uncomfortable thoughts about, about myself and fears and worries and trying to not think those things. But the more you try to avoid thinking about a thing, the more it pops into your head. Mm-hmm. Like if I say to you, don't think of a pink elephant, Guy. Yeah? yeah, just don't think of it. Now, oh my God, you're thinking about a pink elephant. You can't help it. And that's what was sort of happening to me. I was trying to not think about all the things that could go wrong, but perversely, these things kept coming into my mind. And so what's great about mindfulness, and I, you know, I'm, I'm preaching to the conversity, I don't need to tell you this, but is that you kind of get used to those thoughts coming into your mind and kind of observing them and not buying into them and getting caught up in them, exactly. but just that they come and they're going to go as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and as if I if I were to say to you that this is going to happen every day several times, it's not as surprising when you expect it. Then it's okay. All right, this is more familiar. It's not as scary. But also, how do I spend less time dwelling on it? I can't stop the thought from arising, but I can learn to change my relationship with it so that rather than dwelling on it for ten minutes, I only dwell on it for a minute or you know half. And it's all about reducing that and the more we reduce it the more it snowballs and oh i actually can get a grip on this with enough practice and you mentioned cbt and just for our listeners that's the cognitive Cognitive behavioral behavioral therapy therapy. yeah so it teaches you to kind of first of all get very clear on what those thoughts are that you're finding uncomfortable but then get a kind of realistic perspective of them because very often we're overestimating the disaster that might happen underestimating our ability to cope because obviously all things are possible. You know, you might walk outside your front door and get hit on the head by a falling roof tile yeah. and die. But generally, we don't tend to worry about that because it's so vanishingly unlikely. And usually when people have these kinds of concerns, a bit like I did, it was that I was kind of overestimating the possibility that this might go terribly wrong, yeah. underestimating my ability to cope. So it's putting that in perspective. But you're so right about, you know, the thoughts are going to come. It's your relationship to them. One of the things you know, when I heard the theme music of my show starting up, I would, and obviously I've got an earpiece, I'm sitting in the studio, mm. you're hearing the person in the uh, the director's chair counting down 10, 9, 8, mm. 7, and you know, oh my God, I'm going to be air, on air in, you know, five seconds time and I'm really exposed and everyone's watching me. And I'd always get a thought in that moment, I want to run away. What the hell am I doing here? I'm just, I want to get up and run away now. Mm. And Truthfully, Guy, I haven't done a news bulletin for a few months now because I'm a coach now, 
But if I were to sit down in a new studio tomorrow, I might get that thought again if I uh, was sitting in the anchor's chair. But what I learned to do at the end was to have that thought and say to myself, oh, that's just that running away thought that I always get. That doesn't mean anything. That's just something that pops into my mind sometimes. And I didn't kind of buy into it and think to myself, God, what does this mean? I want to run away. This must mean I'm not suitable to do this job and really kind of buy into it. I just know that we get funny thoughts sometimes and you don't have to kind of, it doesn't make them real. They're just thoughts. We think all sorts of stuff all the time, don't we? That isn't real. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's the, the one of the beauties of, of mindfulness. You learn not to identify with your thoughts because throughout the day, like an exercise that I do in my courses, you know, I have my clients say out their thoughts. And then when they look back at it and they go, wow, in five minutes, I've said all this uh-huh. it's so random. And it's so, and it's like, yeah, the first thought is not on you. It's not your fault, right? You can have the worst thought, you know, the most scary thought, but it's then how you respond to that first thought. That's where you take over. So that first thought, that's not on you. Yeah. you know, that fool me once, you know, and fool me twice. That's on you. That, But the second one is like that first thought when you hear the music, or, you know, that, that triggering, whatever, it's a sound or a thought that creates that. But then it's the second step. Do you then let, oh, that creates that second thought that creates that, you know, that pattern of thoughts. Or can you in the moment, once that first thought is triggered, uh, that's my cue to then for me to step in and proactively yeah. do something. Ah, I didn't realize there was choice. Yeah. But when you introduce choice in that moment, oh, that's the... Okay, you may not follow it every time, but at least in that moment, it's like you said, ah, oh, you've now replaced it with, oh, well, it's that, that thing that you have every day. It's, it's normal. And so it's that skill of, A, not only being able to be present, but it's the skill of how quickly can you notice when that thought is arising? Because yeah. all these chemicals are being triggered in your body. You're feeling nervous, all those fight or flight chemicals. So how quickly can you identify that first thought, turn off that tap? And then be proactively do you know do the remediation. What do I want to do? Do I want to dwell on this thought? If so, fine. But if I don't and I'm not comfortable, I've had choice and I want to do something else. And it takes practice, right? Yeah. I'm not saying that this is completely easy, but that's the the theory behind it. The more you practice, the quicker you are at being aware of that thought. So the quicker you are being aware of it, and the quicker you are to do something about it. Yeah, you're, you're so right to use, use that word choice. It's really empowering because we can kind of feel at the mercy of our thoughts, can't we? Like we're not in control of them. Pris- prisoners to our thoughts, yeah. And in fact, we live most of the day in, in thought, 75% of it at least, you know. And so, I mean, that's the deeper end of mindfulness. It's like, well, it's actually, you're spending most of your day lost in thought. Do you want to? Like, um, guess not. Let's review that. You know, the unexamined life is not worth living. You know, let's review... How much of the day? What if you can make it 50% of the day? Is that even an option? It's like, yeah, well, what does it mean to live life mindfully and being present in more moments? And it's like, oh, I didn't even know that existed. I thought it's just me and my thoughts and it is what it is. Yeah, it's very interesting. So let me jump to my next question. Then how much of mindset and mind and that is part of your teaching when you're delivering your courses? A lot of it. A lot of it. So I work with people for 12 weeks. They tend to be, you know, they're always professionals who feel held back in some way in their career because they're not confident to speak up, whether that's taking the opportunity to pitch or present or whether it's just speaking up in meetings, having challenging conversations. They feel nervous about it. They feel held back in some way. And when people 
first come to me, they often think it's just a technique problem. Like, yeah. I can't remember my script or, you know, I don't have the answers to these questions that I'm being asked. And obviously we do, of course, do some technique stuff. But first, you've got to believe and feel and know that you can do this thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't feel and know and believe that, then you can have all the techniques in the world, but you're still not going to be able to do it. A bit like me, when that happened to me, when I started sort of falling apart on air, I was really experienced. It wasn't a technique thing. I'd been doing it for about eight years by that point. So it was all about what was going on between my ears. And actually, people are often surprised when we start really building their confidence, gathering the evidence for how they can do this, putting in perspective those fears that they have about speaking, and we do use those kind of cognitive behavioral therapy techniques, then what they find is actually they kind of don't need the technique stuff because they can speak, you know? And if they had their mindset sorted out about it, then of course they'd be able to contribute and speak up and present. Now, we can make them better at it. We can make it more polished. We can make it more impactful. And that's where the technique comes in. But for the first month that I work with someone, because I work with them for three months, we're just talking about their feelings and their thoughts. And then we get onto the technique part as well. Interesting, because um, one of my best friends who runs the kickboxing academies, you know, he has some of the best fighters. He was a fighter himself, is terrified of public speaking. He won't do interviews And he's almost like thinking of delaying his wedding because he's fearing the best man's speech. That's the degree of it. And it's like, well, you used to be in the ring and have people trying to smash your face in and kick your, you know, kick you all over your body. And yet, you know, it almost seems, it almost seems weird that the idea of speaking versus getting physically hit, he would take the physically getting hit rather than than speaking. Why is it that people are so afraid? What is it? Is it something deeply rooted in their upbringing or does it go beyond that? Is it more evolutionary? Why are so many people afraid to present, to speak publicly? Yeah. And it is many people, you know, anywhere between 50 and 70% of people don't like this. For some people, it's a terror, a bit like your friend and your client. And they just will, you know, change their lives around, not have that wedding, not go for that promotion to avoid it because it's so terrifying. For other people, it's just a bit uncomfortable. But you are, whether it's upbringing, whether it's evolution, Mm -hmm. I think it's a combination of those things. So often when I'm speaking to my clients, you know, I'll ask them, when did you first notice this happened? Often in their childhood, when they're a teenager at that very sensitive age, there may have been an event. You know, I had one client the other day who was saying that she went up on stage to play the piano in a school concert. She forgot what she was doing. The kids started laughing. Her teacher came on stage and kind of ushered her off. And, oh, come on, you silly girl, and was very unsympathetic about it. And since then, she has never wanted to be in front of an audience. And of course, that's no surprise. There's a little bit of a trauma associated with that. And, you know, one of the things that we talked about was that you're not that little girl anymore. The way in which you behaved in that situation was totally appropriate given your life experience, Mm -hmm. but situation, you would deal with it differently now because you have more resources, but also people wouldn't react in that way anymore. You know, children can be very, if I use the word cruel, it's not cruel, but just can't manage situations like that. And they will just laugh, whereas a room full of adults wouldn't do that to you. That teacher handled it very badly. So what we did was kind of make her realize that what happened wasn't about her and her inability to cope. It was about a particular set of circumstances and really kind of put that in perspective. And then we look at, well, what's your fear that you worry might happen in this scenario? And often people's thinking is faulty about this. Mm. So, you know, her worry was I might blush 
and people will think I'm stupid and don't know what I'm talking about. So if you look at those two things, blushing and looking stupid, those don't add up. If you see someone blushing, you don't think they don't know what they're talking about. You might think, oh, it's a bit hot. Or you might think, oh, they're blushing. They find this slightly embarrassing, like a lot of people do. But it wouldn't make you think they don't know what they're talking about. And so we also kind of logically go through what's happening. What are those connections and thoughts that and assumptions that she's making and the meaning she's making about blushing and put that in perspective and get a more realistic perspective. But I've gone slightly off on a tangent, Guy, and what you asked was, is this about childhood? Is this about evolution? And and for this client- Why are people so, because I want people to know it's actually very normal. Totally normal. Yeah, so what is it? So so it's an ego threat, yeah? Mm -hmm. When our ancestors evolved on the African savannas hundreds of thousands of years ago, in order to survive, had to become social animals. So once upon a time, the African savanna was a thickly forested savanna, uh, not savanna, rather, it was, a, it was a jungle, it was a forest. Mm. And our ancestors used to swing through the trees and they were able to escape predators very quickly. The environment changed and there were fewer trees and it became a savanna landscape. So our ancestors were much more exposed. Anthropologists believe that lots of changes happened at around about that time. First of all, we became bipedal, we started to walk. We developed language to be able to cooperate because, you know, cooperate much more easily and much more quickly and protect yourself against predators if you're working in a group. And because that kind of need to belong to a group was so important for our survival, that to be excluded from that group was really a death Death sentence. sentence. Yeah. Yeah. And so our ancestors who survived and passed on their genes to us really feared social exclusion. And we still do. We really fear being judged negatively, being found wanting, being embarrassed, being excluded. Except, of course, these days you get embarrassed. You know, you're not going to be chucked out of the tribe. You're not going to be on your own, left to deal with the whatever lions and tigers. It's just a bit embarrassing. You could be fired, though. I mean, I think the the fear for, for me from, you know, when doing my quarterly review in front of the boss, even though they're not going to get fired for this, but in the back of my mind, something goes terribly wrong. You could potentially. So that's kind of being excommunicated from that group, that corporate group in a way, right? And so it's almost normal then the brain's feeling a life or death situation, even though it's not a life or death situation, right? Yeah, it feels pulling on those old, old evolutionary strings of like, uh oh, if you're out of this group, then this could mean death potentially. And that's where we go to. We think people are going to think I'm an idiot. I can't do my job. They're going to not give me this project or I'm going to lose my job or whatever and all of those things. And you're right is what our ancestors felt, albeit in a slightly different context. But then put on top of that, this kind of tendency to overestimate the disaster, underestimate one's ability to cope and overblow it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because again, like my client who thought that blushing would lead to them thinking she was stupid, those Lots of things have to happen along the way for that to be the case. It would have to be much more than just blushing. She'd also have to really mess up this speaking event. But even this speaking event, you can mess up one speaking event, but it's still not going to change people's opinions of you if they know you, you know, and if they work with you day to day. So even your nervousness about your your kind of yearly review, it would never just hinge on that one review. It would might form a part of it, but there'd be lots of other bits of evidence that your boss would draw on to make their assessment of you. But it's very hard to see and see that at the time. So that's part of what we do as well, get realistic about what's really true about this. Yeah. So let's shift a little bit. So you went from a, a career 
in TV presenting, news presenting, and now you're a full-time coach. Yeah. You know, what was the reason for that change? And kind of, you know, what's your why now as you take on this venture of helping people? Yeah. You know, what, what is the reasoning behind it? When I had my little boy 10 years ago, it was when I was struggling, really struggling. So I had this show five nights a week with ITV and I went on maternity leave and I thought, phew, I get to escape for a year, look after my son and find out what I'm going to do with my career because I can't keep doing this. It's too stressful. And I really, I would never go back. And so, you know, on those long night feeds, when I was kind of thinking about what I was going to do with my life, when I eventually had to go back to work, I initially thought, right, find another career, do something else. But in my research, what I realized was I actually loved a lot of things about being a news anchor, being a TV, finding things out. Actually, I was also quite good at it. Mm -hmm. The only thing that I didn't like was this uncomfortable fear feeling when I went on air every night. And so I realized, actually, no, just tackle that. You can still keep doing this job. You just got to tackle that. And that led me on a journey. As I said, I had some cognitive behavioral therapy. I also work with some presentation coaches. I reached out to different people who I knew from the industry, some of them really high profile people and had some very honest conversations. And I'm so grateful to some of those people for just sort of making me see that's normal. We all get those thoughts. We all feel that way. We all feel exposed. It's normal. And really over the course of that year, I was able to put that stuff in perspective through a combination of of doing these things that I just mentioned. And so I did then go back to work in TV news as a news anchor. Logistically, because I had my young son, I didn't want to be doing that full time anymore. So I went back freelance and and went to work for the BBC, again, news anchoring um, Mm -hmm. their program a couple of nights a week. But what that did was it gave me more time at home with my little one. But also then being freelance enabled me to start exploring other options. And One of the presenter coaches who I'd worked with to help me through my stuff said to me, actually, you'd be really good to come and work with me in corporations, helping people with their speaking. So I started to to come along and do some of that work with him. And initially, it was very much about, right, what's the message? How are we going to put it across in an impactful way? And it was very much about kind of message development and more kind of the typical sort of presentation training you might get in a corporate organization. But what I found was that every time I went on one of these jobs with him, there was always someone in the room for whom it wasn't just about getting the message right. It was a real mindset issue and a Mm. confidence issue. And I would see this and I think, I know you, I know how you feel. I was you a year ago. Mm. And, you know, this particular presentation coach wasn't really dealing with that aspect of it. And I ended up having a conversation with, with one of the women who worked for these corporations. And I was saying to her, look, I really get it. I felt this way too. And she said to me, well, can you and I do a little bit of work on this together? And so it started off just her and I managed to help her by sharing some of the things I'd learned. And really it just grew from there. And I realized, you know, I could, I've got this toolkit. I know how I can help people and I wanted to take it further. And, you know, eventually it grew from working one-to-one to working in small groups. I've got an online course now. You know, we've had hundreds of people go through that program now with really great results. And some of them have gone on to do TED Talks. You know, some have gone on to address the UN, for example. Mm. You know, really amazing stuff. Others have just gone on to go to work every day and feel happy that they can yeah. speak and this isn't an issue for them anymore. And yeah. that's great too. Not and that's huge as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, and you know, over that time, I suppose what made me more excited about getting up in the morning was the coaching side, because you feel yeah. you're 
really changing someone's life. Right. And what made me feel perhaps less excited was the new stuff because I'd been doing it for a long time by then. So gradually that ratio changed. And yeah, a couple of years ago, I became full time in the coaching business. Awesome. This podcast is sponsored by Be Present Coaching, upskilling business professionals with mindfulness tools. Check out bepresent.uk for more information on corporate courses and guided mind exercises. Now back to the episode. I was speaking earlier about when I'm presenting, whether it's on slides or, you know, pitching my, you know, my courses and my stuff to people. And I, you know, it, it is, it's all a presentation, right? I heard someone once say, you know, their secret to success was they just want to give the John Legend effect. And I love that idea of like, oh, the John Legend effect. And I, I took note, I said, I'm going to do that when I deliver, I'm going to deliver the John Legend effect. So I sit down to prepare and I'm like, well, what is, how do I, how do I deliver the John Legend effect? It's all great to say that I wanted to make it magical and memorable and storytelling, but I didn't know how. So, you know, I, I did a research, put a few things together, but, you know, can we take this moment? Can you share some of, you know, if someone to our listeners, just a, a couple of key tips or something, if they're in the presenting and delivering a certain message, you know, what bits of advice could we share perhaps and that people could take away today? Yeah. Every single person can become a brilliant speaker. You know, everybody knows how to speak. Everybody engages people sometimes in their life, whether they're in the pub, having a drink with their mates, telling a joke, whether they're speaking to their children, telling them a story at night. We all have the ability to connect, move people, hold their attention, change their points of view, change their minds through the way we speak. Yeah. So what gets in the way of that is our own kind of fear and focusing on ourselves rather than the message we're trying to get across. So number one, focus on your audience, whether that's one person or a room of people, and focus on the message. What is the single thing that these people need to know to have that change in some way, to do something different, to see something differently? And I see a lot of speakers try to say too much. Actually, we're not very good at taking in a lot of information when we hear it. If you really want to forensically kind of get to grips with a lot of information, you're better off reading it. When we're speaking, we want in our speakers that kind of guiding hand, that thought leader. We don't need them to do a big info dump on us. Right. Better to say one thing really impactfully and people remember it, have people remember it, than say 10 things load your audience with information and now they don't remember any of it. And if you think, Guy, you've probably had the experience at some point or other, you're driving along, you don't know where you are, you get lost, you know you need to get to, let's say, the Red Lion pub where you're meeting some friends for lunch, but you don't know where the Red Lion pub is. And so you stop the car, you wind down the window and you say to someone, can you tell me how to get to the Red Lion pub? And they know where the Red Lion pub is. And they say, yeah, it's really easy. You go down this road for half a mile, you'll get some traffic lights, you turn left, you go over a little road bridge, you turn right, then you keep going down there for half a mile, you'll see another set of traffic lights, there's a little roundabout, go over that roundabout, first left and the red lines on your right. And you go, great, thanks. Wind up the window and you remember none of it. You have no idea what that person is saying. Mm -hmm. It wasn't because the information was wrong. It was right. It was very detailed. It was very helpful, but it yeah. wasn't helpful to you in that moment. Yeah. And they'd have been better off saying, go half a mile down this road in a straight line, then ask again. You know, at least it would get you part of the way to where you yeah. needed to be and it would be more useful. We'll just head, to, head roughly in that direction. There you go. And so sometimes you've got to kind of make the difficult decision of not giving the whole picture, not giving all the information 
for the benefit of your audience, because they're not going to be able to take all of that in that moment. So it's kind of, I call it slaughtering your darling. Sometimes we're so close to our subject that we want to say it all, don't we? We're passionate about it, but yeah. you can't put it. Yeah, we don't it. want to forget anything. We have to make sure that they get all, but yeah, yeah I think I'm a bit guilty of that as well. And you're passionate about your subject, of course. Mm -hmm. So that's number one. Number two, don't learn a script. So we're really bad at remembering scripts. You know, professional actors remember scripts, but they have weeks to learn their lines. They have a prompt in the wings to help them. If you're trying to deliver some 40-minute presentation, scripted, verbatim, and learn that, you are giving yourself a very hard task. You'll be using a part of your brain that you don't use very much, that recall part of the brain, and that kind of tension will be etched all over your face as you try to concentrate and remember those words. So you're far better to have key points that you know you want to hit and then kind of flow around those points and talk around them knowing that it's going to sound slightly different every time you deliver it. So again, you know, I teach people a technique to do that and remember a way to do that. And then last of all, and I think this applies particularly to people speaking in the corporate world, is that often they're talking about abstract ideas, you know, numbers, data, and we don't tend to remember abstract ideas. So as much as possible, how can you make what you're trying to say concrete? Use analogies, use stories to illustrate the points you're trying to make. Because again, your audience is just going to be able to remember that and take it on board. And stories also then kind of touch us emotionally. And usually when you're speaking to an audience, you want to bring about some kind of change. You want to either change their mind or change their action in some way. And often we make the mistake of just appealing to logic to do that. But what we know, you know, studies of the brain show us that if somebody has had damage to the emotional reasoning part of their brain, it doesn't just affect their ability to understand emotions, it affects their decision making ability too. We think that we make decisions based on logic, but we don't. We actually make decisions in a large part on mm -hmm. emotion too, and then we yeah. tend to comply with logic. So if you're trying to persuade people through your speaking, you need to engage them emotionally, take them on an emotional journey, not just bombard them with the logic and the facts. Yes. In sales, they say, you know, when you're selling, you know, people buy on emotion predominantly versus anything else. So that's that's very interesting to get that backed up. When you look at any great advert, like, you know, the John Lewis Christmas adverts, they're not selling you a message that says, come and buy your Christmas shopping at John Lewis, are they? They're selling you a feeling, a feeling of family or a feeling of loss, and they make you cry. Mm. Even something like a sofa advert is never saying to you, look at our lovely sofas with great arms and strong leather seats. They're selling you a kind of feeling of coziness and time together as a family. That's the feeling they're selling you, mm. the emotion rather than the product itself. So what, what's the meerkat, you know, the adverts with the meerkats and the, uh, and, and the go compare with the tenor that's, you know, singing off the top of it. Yeah. Surprise. You're going to remember that. It's unusual. So yeah. that's what they're doing there. And they're funny, you know, making it surprising, making it funny makes yeah. it memorable. Gotcha. They've also got their very catchy go compare tune. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, memorable. You know, memorable. Slightly exactly. annoying, but memorable. Yeah. Yeah, I think yeah. the Germans call it an earworm when it gets in your head and you can't get it out. Yeah, yeah. But then it means that when you next look for your, um, your next comparing your insurance policy, the Go Compare tune exactly. is going to be in your head. It's where you're going to go. It is indeed. It is indeed. <laughs> All right. So if our listeners, you know, they're, they're interested in understanding a little bit more about how to be, you know, to present more confidently, etc. Where, where can they go to get your help, your materials and find out more about that? 
I would love them to come and find out more. So you can go to my website, www.vanessacudiford.com. And okay. I think you can post some links to that. I'm also there, there, on the- It will be on the screen as we talk. Fabulous. So vanessacudiford.com, mm-hmm. on LinkedIn. I've got a Facebook group, which people are welcome to join, where I'm posting tips. And then I also have a webinar. Uh, and you can get to those webinars through my website where you can find out it's a 45 minute webinar where I teach you some of those key shifts that will help you speak confidently. But you're always very welcome to reach out through my website. And I'm always happy to have a chat and just see if we can help you. You know, one of the things that we always try to do is really find out what people are struggling with first and work out, are we the people to help you or will something else? Yes. Like cognitive behavioral therapy, like mindfulness, because obviously we get great results and make sure that we are helping the people who we can help. So, you know, we'll never kind of tell you we can help you if we can't, but we can have that initial chat and we'll point you in the right direction, whether that's us or whether that's someone like you, Guy, or something else. Sounds good. Sounds very good. Again, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. You know, this is a subject that's absolutely fascinating to me. And to end, I in the, in the traditional fashion on the podcast, just ask, given your vast experience and, you know, where you are currently, what matters most to you? Such a great question. And, you know, you'll know because you're a, someone who's running your own business now, the danger of it. You have this perception that running your own business will give you freedom and time because you're not having to answer to other people and take your five weeks holiday a year. And actually what can happen very easily is that it can become quite all consuming. It's like having another child. And so, you know, one of the things that I've been very mindful of in the last year or so is getting that balance right, because I am a real life mum as well. I have my business baby, but I have my real baby. I have my husband, I have my family, and just like everyone else, friends and those things that matter to me. And so my priority at the moment is getting that balance right and spending the precious, precious time that we have in our lives in the right way with the people we love. So that's what matters to me most, trying to be present in those moments when I have that time with the people I love. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for doing this. You know, and again, thank you for for sharing, you know, so many insights about business and presentation that's helped me, to, you know, for my value video, etc. You know, I was just really taken aback at how, you know, how available and how forthcoming, as I mentioned earlier, you say, yeah, use this, use my structure, use this, go check this out and do that. And so I am eternally grateful for that and just just really excited to collaborating with you a bit more in the future. Oh, Guy, the feeling's mutual. You know, I think what you're doing is amazing. So important for helping people get to grips with those thoughts that don't serve them, whether it's thoughts about their confidence or any other thoughts. Yes. And, you know, I'm just so excited to see where your business goes because I know you're helping, already helping so many people. And this podcast is a really great way to do that too. Wonderful. Thanks for making it this far and showing your support and love to the podcast. A big thanks again to Be Present Coaching for their support. Find out more about their masterclass mindfulness courses and free guided meditations at bepresent.uk. Bepresent.uk. I'm your host, Guy, and this is the Mindful News Podcast. If you've taken away something from today's episode, please go ahead and share the link with a friend. Until next week. Bye.